G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm excited to be sharing with you how to become wealthy by modeling those that are successful. And in this episode today, I'm going to be going into the ways of thinking, the mindset, the habits, the activities that are common to the wealthy. And these I've witnessed, I've worked on modeling them for many years and cultivating them within myself. And I'm hoping that they can help with your journey. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. When I was 16, I read the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, an absolute classic if you've never read it. Stop this podcast, go read it, and then come back to this. An amazing book, and it really lit a fire in me to become wealthy. Now, over the years, what that looks like has changed drastically. So initially, it was more just about the money and what that could do for my life and my family's life. But now it's about so much more than just being monetarily rich. It encompasses finances, health, family, relationships, happiness, and fulfillment, and ultimately that larger legacy and what I can do to give back. And that for me is what I call being wealthy. It's not one-dimensional, it's multi-dimensional, and it's a lifelong pursuit. So I'm definitely not there, I'm not done, and there's always ways that I can do things better and become more wealthy in all the senses of that word. So early on, I was very obsessed with the mechanics and what to do to become, I guess, monetarily rich. And what I missed was the thinking and the mindset that I've had to develop over time. And that was actually the most essential difference that I've found between those that are wealthy and those that are what we would probably more call middle class or poor. So here are some of the key ways of thinking and the mindsets, as well as some of the habits and activities that I've found common to the wealthy that have I've both witnessed these things as I've grown out my friend groups. I've been able to model these things in those that are more wealthy than me. And I've read about countless books and audios, pulled all of this together into my own mindset, my own way of thinking, my own habits, my own activities. And um, I've cultivated these things within myself. So I wanted to lay them out because I believe that becoming rich and wealthy is possible for everyone. And you too can, can start to model these things. And if you model it and progress towards it, you might be only 10% the, the same as that model to begin with. But the closer you get, the more that money shows up in your life, these other things all start going really well as well for you. And you can wake up one day, pinch yourself and consider yourself really wealthy. So my journey, I guess, continues and I don't have all the answers, that's for sure, but I hope these can help you. So let's go through them. I'm going to be pretty quick and I'm going to go deeper into some of them and not as deep into others. So what do the wealthy do? They create assets 
that buy assets. And this is straight from Rich Dad Poor Dad and Cashflow Quadrant. So around 70% of the self-made millionaires are actually business owners. And not everyone, I guess, needs to or wants to start a business. So instead, you can look at operating your investing as a business to move you into being wealthy. You have to treat your investing as a business. And what is creating assets that buy assets? What does that really mean? So it shows that they use, they put their money, their thinking into creating an asset that gives them back a gain in capital and or income. They use that money that flows back to them to do more of the same and go and buy other assets and create other assets. That's why becomes a snowball that starts out very small, but over time gains serious momentum because they're using those gains to recreate more assets that give them more income and more gains. So you can do that very well with property and you can treat your property as a business if you develop the right mindset and thinking and overall plan to execute. Start small and work your way up. Now, second point, they don't work for money. Instead, they have money and others work for them. Now, you don't get here overnight. It takes a lot of hard work initially to create enough of an asset base that can allow you to step back and have your money working for you in the investor quadrant. You could potentially have some form of business that is giving you, created a system that is giving you back income and it's passive. It doesn't require your everyday input and you can have a team of professionals and other people working for you on growing your portfolio and your wealth. And if you put all of those things, if you're putting your money to work for you instead of working for money, it's a completely different approach to how you derive your income. So the wealthy also understand the power of leverage. So those that think that debt is bad and they just try and pay off their home and then never do anything else, look, paying off your home is going to be still a good step. It's not going to have you be wealthy. You need to use the bank's money to own a larger asset, such as properties. And when you look at the actual rates of return that you're getting on cash invested, the leverage has some serious power. So let's say you use 100 grand to go and buy a $500,000 property. Even if that goes up just 10%, or let's say it goes up 20%, because that's likely to be happening across Perth, certainly over the next one to two years, I would expect. So if you've put 100,000 in, it's gone up 20%, you've got 100,000 gain on the property, that's a 100% gain on your money. And even if that took two years at 50%, that's a serious rate of return. So you need to understand the power of leverage and also the risk involved and be putting it into assets that are going to grow and maintain their value as best as possible. So next point, they're focused on working for fulfillment, not working for money. They may have done lots of hard work to create their asset base, as I mentioned in some of those previous points, but they're then able to make have a choice freely over where they work and what they do with their time. So I've found myself as I've been working my way up, I've removed, continued to remove more and more of the tasks and things that I don't like doing and found others around me that absolutely love doing those things and are much better at them than I ever will be because they're enjoying their work as well. They get better outcomes and I get better outcomes as well because I'm focusing on the things that fulfill me. People can feel that when someone is working for fulfillment instead of just working for the grind of money. 
The next point, they value their time over money. Now, this one I'd never really understood before, but in the last few years, I've really got into understanding this. So what does that mean? Well, that's why they're prepared to pay others to do things for them because their time is just so precious. And as I've gotten a family, as I've gotten a daughter, spending time with her and having time to think and space to do that is just so precious. And it's the only thing we can't ever get back. We can always go and get more money, but certain things come up where it reminds you of just how short life is and how important that time is that we're never going to get back. So because the wealthy put such a high value on their time, it also means that they choose to putting effort into things. They choose high impact activities. doesn't mean that they're always go-go, but when they're working, when they are working, they're making a high impact, whether that be to directly do the most highest value tasks, or it might mean making a larger contribution to charities and other things that they're passionate about. So next point, they buy investment grade property in high growth blue chip areas. Now, this is key because, and I've touched on it in episode 33, my criteria for a top performing property. The key difference here is they're not gambling, they're not speculating, they're finding the best, most proven places to park their money. And because it's in greatest demand, it's going to grow the best over time. And the other thing that I never got ages ago when I I was still deciding whether I was going to more focus on income producing property or growth producing property is that when you focus on income producing property, because the growth in capital is not there as much, it also limits the growth in the rental price because the rental price is directly in line with the overall asset value. So let's say over 10 or 20 years, a property that grows by a lot more than the other, the rent's going to go up in line with that. And that's why in 10, 20 years, someone that has a, a blue chip property that's investment grade are going to wake up with much higher income than the person that went out and bought a more of an income-focused uh, property that doesn't have the high growth associated with it. The growth in the rental price is going to be subdued and limited too. So when I got my head around that, and I also have been more drawn towards simplicity and thinking over the longer term, it just makes so much more sense to buy investment grade blue chip and go with quality over quantity of your assets. So next point, they are good money managers with excellent control of their money. So listen to episode 38 if you haven't already on finding your next property deposit. I really enjoyed that one, snuck in there all of my uh, money habits and suggested structures for your bank accounts and how to control your money more. So money has a strange way of only going to those that can handle it and only giving you as much as you can handle. Those that can multiply it to make a positive impact, money just seems to show up more too. And it's the way that money flows around our economies. So the other money habit that the uh, wealthy have is that they pay for their toys with their investment returns. Rather than taking that money and going and buying a boat, they might go and buy an asset that gives them a boat with the returns that come through on it. So they're also prepared to delay their gratification around their toys until they're truly wealthy and can afford it. So next point, They make use of trusts and structures to protect their assets and minimize their tax and allow control beyond their death. 
So if building a portfolio, you need to look at your structuring before you go out and buy even your first property. And you need to discuss with your accountant the overall plan for where you're heading. For most people, if you're just buying one property, their advice is probably going to be very different to if you're going to create a whole portfolio of properties. So it's very expensive to change this afterwards. And the savings can be very considerable if you're structured much better. So because the wealthy think about this and use structures to their advantage, they pay a hell of a lot less tax and it enables whenever they pass and leave this world for trusts to still control how their assets are left. So next one, I've touched on this probably once or twice in some of the ones above, but because they value their time over money and because they are prepared to invest in things, they think about things as investments, not just expenses. A poor person sees the cost of a professional and just sees the cost. A wealthy person sees what a investment can return and they know the value of paying for professionals. And that's a big one that I've had to learn too. If you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. And it's an obvious one, but especially with our property management side as well, people want to come and pay the lowest fee when they've already been doing that with their existing manager that's poorly managed the property. Their tenants have trashed things. They've given them a hell of a lot of nightmares and stress and there's no price you can put on good management. Don't let me get distracted on property management there. <laughs> so who should be in your team? Well, you need a finance broker because investing in property is a game of finance with houses thrown in, as Michael Yardney says. You need an accountant for your structuring and minimizing your tax, making sure you're compliant with everything. A financial planner to work with that actually understands property so you can have an overall plan to work towards and know how things are going to change through the different phases of your life and model all of that out so that you know when you drop down to one income for having family and whatnot, you know you can handle it, you know that you're going to end up with enough passive income from the activities that you're doing and that's going to completely determine what you do. And they can also help you work other assets together with property to create an overall safer mix so that you can wear ups and downs and ultimately have a very strong base of, of wealth. So who else do you need in your team? You need a sales agent such as myself, you need a buyer's agent, essential, you need a property manager such as all of my team, you need a settlement agent, I married one, uh, Shout out to my lovely wife. And if you're going to do more adding value strategies, you need a good surveyor, you need a builder, a town planner, potentially a project manager, and all of those. There's others that I haven't thought to mention, but creating a team around you is essential. And I'm going to go deeper into this in some of our upcoming episodes. So next point, they love continuous learning and growing themselves. So I described to many of my team and friends that I actually feel anxious if I don't learn something new each day. It's an addiction that is a positive one. It could have been drugs, <laughs> stayed off of that path, but I'm addicted to learning and it's not just the learning that I absolutely love and feel anxious about. When I've learned something, I feel like I need to apply it because I absolutely love seeing the outcome of something I've applied and the outcome of a new idea. And that's where the addiction comes from. So it's a great habit to have. And 
a lot of people just stop learning when they finish high school or when they finish uni. But for me, I'm listening to one or two podcasts every day, listening to a book before I go to sleep, listening to a book while I drive, reading a book at the table in the morning while I eat my breakfast, just surrounding myself with learnings in all kinds of areas. So a great one to model there. The next one is think about generational wealth and how to pass it on. And that requires very long-term focus. So can you see how in every decision when they've got that generational focus that they might be asking themselves, you know, is this asset going to be suited to being in my family for generations? Now, if you hold up, held up a purchase of a property to that criteria, how does that impact your choice? And things I ask myself is how do I elevate and keep my family at an upper class for the next generation? How do I enable my wealth to continue and not use it all up before I die, but leave my family in a much better place so that we never have to worry about money again. Now, next one, and this ties into that other one, the one just before about generational wealth. The wealthy teach their kids about money and investing when they're young, giving them a positive programming that stays with them their whole life and helps them create wealth. So I never obviously got this one because my parents are not wealthy and I had to reprogram myself with the mindsets and thinking on how to be wealthy. But imagine the head start that the wealthy kids of those who are wealthy have when they're just around positive money, reinforcing discussions every day, things that they model in the actions that their parents are taking. My biggest one here was I was taught that money was hard to come by and that there was a real scarcity around money. So I've had to reprogram myself to think from a more abundance place and that money's easy to come by. That's taken a long time. So the next Next one here is they keep increasing their financial thermostat. Now, I love a lot of Michael Yardney's work where he, in his book, uh, Guide to Getting Rich, where he goes really deep into the financial thermostat. So this is a great way of understanding how we're programmed to a set point for wealth. And you can see it in the lottery winners where they might win millions of dollars. And then in a short time, they've lost that money back to where their financial thermostat was set. This programming affects our level of wealth. And how does it do it? Well, we're not comfortable either aspiring to high levels of wealth and don't feel like we can handle it, or if we don't feel like we're worthy and deserving to be wealthy, these things self-sabotage us without us even knowing. So our subconscious, I think it's quoted that it controls 60% or 70% of our decisions, and we can be having reactions and making decisions that we think are logical, that we believe are thought out. It's based on this hardwired programming of our beliefs that are formed at a very young age because our parents weren't wealthy. They didn't teach us the thinking and the mindset needed to be wealthy. So for me, my biggest one was finding my own self-worth and the more I've found that self-worth and belief in myself, the more it's showed up for me in physical worth and riches. So don't underestimate how important this financial thermostat is. Finally, two more for you. We've got an abundance, not scarcity mindset. Now, this was really key because the wealthy think win-win when it comes to things. How can I create a win for this person as well as me getting a win? And how they do that is by creating and making opportunities 
opportunities bigger. That's one of the key ways. So they're always looking at where's the opportunity in this for everyone? How can we create something of greater value? So everything that they come to, they always bring more value to what they're doing. Whereas the poor think win-lose and how can they take from others? So there can also be people that are that are rich but have a poor mindset and they're never going to be wealthy in the true sense of all those other ways. They might have money, but they're not going to have the friends and the family all leaving them and they're not going to have the ultimate fulfillment because they're actually poor in their mindset, if that makes sense. So the final one, I thought it was a great way to end my insights into how to model how to become wealthy and that's they make a large contribution, positive impact on others. So there's this concept called the levels of exchange that one of my mentors introduced me to. And if you want to look at what you're getting back from the world, you need to look at how much value you're exchanging in order to get things back and receive more, you need to add more value and contribute more. So if you're not getting what you think is a very small amount from the world, look at how you can increase your value, make a larger contribution, make a larger positive impact on others. And I can assure you from my own experience, everything will start coming back to you. So the level of your current wealth is in direct proportion to the contribution and the positive impact that you're making on others. I think that's a great place to finish up our episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Make sure you share this episode with one other person. It really helps us continue to get listeners and help more people with their journeys. Thanks and catch you on the next one.